Go ahead. It says we're live. He's okay. waiting, but fresh. Head of man. First top guinea. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, but they do not seek out your decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your law. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See, now I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Good stuff. Okay. And he says we're live and it's working even in Israel. So apparently they've got things figured out over there. All right. Let's see. We go, Oh, man. We got all kinds of uh, stuff going on here. We got uh, Trent was admitted to the hospital with blood clots in his lungs. And uh, he's uh, out now. He's better. But uh, he, I know he would appreciate more prayers to make sure those blood clots and everything go away that was from a residual from his covid and then dr bridges who is here every thursday night is not here because yesterday on the way to the thai restaurant right down the road he he fell or something and hit his head and I, he just apparently has got all kinds of staples in his head so we'll have him and mabel in prayer and then mike and debbie in los alamos at, They've had COVID, but they're still struggling with it. And then Scott Fultz in Colorado also has it, and he's the worst of the whole family. All five had it, but he's still struggling through it, so we'll keep them in prayer. And then Jackie, who's out in Missouri, uh, has been coughing up blood, a lot of it. And um, uh, they went to the hospital, and they couldn't find anything serious. So because they can't find anything serious that the, doesn't answer why she's coughing up blood and so they're going to go and get some more checks i have not heard back from them this afternoon but that's kind of scary and then shannon's father shannon who's here on sunday mornings her father just died and so we want to keep the family in prayer because uh that's tough they were just out in california to see him so they got to see him before he died but they weren't there with him so difficult times there and uh, I know I'm forgetting something. I had, I'll remember it in the middle of class. Anyway, Heavenly Father, we certainly lift up these people and their troubles. And uh, there are other people as well that uh, we uh, have had uh, troubles with over the past week and a half. And so we would ask that you would continue to remember all of them that we've mentioned. And Lord, may your hand be with them and your healing, if it's your desire, or if it's uh, not, help them to patiently endure through these things or to understand why they're happening and to, to place them in your capable hands, knowing that you have a purpose for everything that happens. Lord, uh, my friend Ryan is kind of struggling with some things, and so I want to lift him up as well. He's just having kind of a difficult time. And Lord, we got a class that we're going to conduct, and we would pray that it would be proper, that the words would be right, and that uh, you would be glorified through it. But if there's any point of doctrine which is incorrect, I would ask that you would uh, have the people that hear it uh, be led to something that would lead them to what is proper and not what's improper. We would never purposely and uh, take your word and uh, uh, mistreat it. So, Lord, we just pray that things will be done properly and that you'll be glorified in this class. 
We thank you for the chance to meet here. What a blessing it is to be in your word. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see here. We've got this day in history. This day in history, which is today is the 4th of November, if I remember correctly. And so we're going to go back to 7, 6, 5, 3. Whoops. Whoa, just lost that. Okay. And we're back to 4 November. The drinking of wine signaled both the beginning and the end of the spiritual pilgrimage of one of England's greatest preachers. In 1779, Charles Simeon entered King's College at Cambridge University as an eager student with no particular allegiance to God. <clears throat> After three days, he was appalled to learn that at Cambridge, participation in the Lord's Supper was mandatory. In just three weeks, he would have to eat the bread and drink the wine at communion. His initial reaction was that Satan was probably more prepared for the Lord's Supper than he. An earnest soul, he determined that he must prepare himself immediately. He went out and brought the only Christian book he knew, The Whole Duty of Man by William Law, the great English devotional writer. As he read and reread it, he cried out to God for mercy. By the time he took communion, he had made himself ill with his intense reading, fasting, and prayer. Then, as soon as he had taken communion, he realized that Easter was coming when he would have to take it again. He sought out books on the Lord's Supper and poured over them. He remembered the sins of his life and mourned over them. He sincerely tried to repent and to exercise self-denial. When Holy Week came, he read that in their sacrificial system, the Jews transferred their sin to the sacrifice. The question entered his mind, may I transfer my guilt to another? Now, can you imagine entering a seminary and not knowing this? Has God provided an offering for me to which I may transfer my sins? Boy, the church that he attended had... <laughs> can't even imagine this. Good bingo night. Yeah. On Wednesday of the Holy Week, he began to hope that he would find mercy from Thursday through Sunday. This hope increased more and more. Finally, on Easter Sunday, he awoke with these words on his lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. As he ate the bread and drank the wine of communion, he felt a load being taken off his soul and a peace that he had never before experienced. He now knew that Jesus, in his death, had paid the penalty for his guilt and his sins. Charles Simeon grew in his faith and went on to become vicar of Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge, where he served for 54 years as one of England's greatest preachers. On November 4, 1836, exactly a week before his death, Charles Simeon drank a glass of wine that his doctor had prescribed for him. Stretching out his feeble arms, he pronounced a blessing on those in his room. May all the blessings which my adorable Savior purchased for me with his tears yea, with his own precious life blood, be now given to me to enjoy, and to my two dearest friends, and my two dear nurses, I shall no more, I shall drink no more of that wine until I drink it new with my Redeemer. A week later, he was with his Redeemer in his kingdom. What does the Lord's Supper mean to you? Do you prepare yourself for it by taking a spiritual inventory and truly repenting of your sins? Taking the cup at the Lord's Supper can be just another church ritual, or it can be a renewal of your allegiance to the Lord of the Supper. Which is it for you? 
Luke 22:17 and 18, he took a cup of wine, and when he had given thanks for it, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Now, taking everything out of context, I had somebody say that no Christian should ever drink any uh, wine because Jesus said, I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Okay, uh, in the same verse, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. So, uh, obviously, that's a misinterpretation of Scripture, and people love to do that. Um, the fact that the uh, church or the seminary that he was at mandated that they take communion for everybody, even if somebody isn't saved, shows that they were wrong on that precept as well, because it's not intended for people that are not saved. It's intended for people that have come to Christ and are remembering his death until he comes. And the fact that that guy wasn't even schooled on the atonement of Christ I, I just, the whole thing, I can't even imagine having read that, that uh, this goes on in the world, but apparently it goes on in the world. Yeah, just unbelievable. So now we are in Ephesians chapter 6, and before we start, I remembered what was on my mind, because I'm sitting here trying to think of what was on my mind, is that Burke is okay. We were talking about him a week ago. He had a, a surgery he was going into, and he had a melanoma on his arm, and man, he showed us his scar today on his right arm, and it's about, I don't know, maybe 100 inches long and 10 inches deep, and not obviously that's not true, but it's a giant scar, and they really cut and cut, but they got everything. They say that uh, he is uh, good to go with that, but he's got his arm to recover, so we'll add him to our prayers and our thoughts as well, but good job for Burke. Okay, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. Yep. Now, you know what, talking about Ephesians 6, somebody asked me if I would... Uh, do a, you know, the people that are doing the Bible Bites, the girl down in um, uh, Naples, she arranges them, and then a girl over in Czechoslovakia is, you know, putting them into uh, individual bites, and uh, so that they're they're kind of working together to get these things out, and somebody said, I really like these, I appreciate them, and they're helping me with this and that, would you do them on Hebrews chapter 6? And I said, well, It'll be a while, but now that we're in Ephesians 6, Hebrews 6 is getting closer yeah, by the day. Yeah, just around the corner. Yeah, so we'll be there in no time. But anyway, here we go. Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, let me get out my notes. It would always help if I had the notes out when we're starting. Okay, Ephesians 6, verse 1, and it says the exact same thing. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, so... Chapter 6 begins with a movement from the marital relationship to that of the responsibilities of and for children. Paul addresses the technon, or children, directly. The word indicates a child, but in a fuller sense, it figuratively indicates anyone, this is helps word studies, anyone living in full dependence on the Heavenly Father, for example, fully, willingly relying upon the Lord, in glad submission, this prompts God to transform, transform them into his likeness. That's their evaluation of the word technon, which means children. Uh, one of the writers that uses the term children again and again and again is John in his epistles. Little children, I say to you, little children, he says that a lot. Um, the word in this case is following the and Burke, I just reminded everybody of what I had forgot to pray about is Burke Carrico, and uh, so there you go. I would ask that I'd ask you to come and show them your scar, but I there'd be people that would freak out, and they'd be like me. I almost passed out when I saw it. So, okay, the word in this case, technon, is 
following the family unit of children within a household, in such a case, the children are instructed to obey your parents in the Lord. The words in the Lord are given to qualify the word obey. In other words, the assumption is that Paul is writing to children who are of the household of faith. Okay, obviously you can't give instruction to a non-believer about things that a believer is supposed to be doing. You can, but it's just not going to be effective. His words do not exclude the fact that all children should so obey their parents, but not all children will receive the words of Paul. Those who do not still have God's general revelation of himself, which is instilled in them concerning family hierarchies. However, as is the case outside of God's special revelation of himself to his people, these things often become skewed or even outright rejected. Years and years ago, I used to watch The Simpsons, and it, it was appalling. You know, the, the Bart Simpson is telling his father what to do, and that was the theme that you constantly saw. You know, he's almost belittling him, and all that is doing is instilling the same attitude in children all over the society. It just is uncontrollable now, but that is the norm. Children say, I want to be a girl when he's a boy, or a girl says, I want to be a boy when I'm a girl. And the parents in many countries now have no choice but to concede to the wishes of their child. Instead of giving them a spanking and telling them to grow up, they go to the, the school. The school says, yes, this is what this child is. And so the operation begins without the parent's permission. And this is going on in the world right now. It's happening right now. You talk about Genesis 6. Let's stop right there and just read you. It, you know, I, it just comes to my mind every day as I'm preparing for the report. I have to do a couple hours worth of, of uh, reading of news articles. And by the time I'm done, I'm just appalled at what I see. It says, um, let's see here. Um, Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There you go. That's the world today. I mean, it's just a repeat of what was said. Um, so my mother just walked in, and because we're doing ch children obey your parents, I'm not going to say anything at all today. I'm going to be very good because we're in Ephesians 6 verse 1, and hopefully we'll be in a more uh, propitious verse next week where I can say something awry. Um, but there you go. Okay, let me. this is going to beep again unless I click on that. Okay, Jody is stuck in traffic. Okay, so let's see here. Um, uh, okay, yeah, I'll read that again. However, as is the case outside of God's special revelation of himself to his people, these things often become skewed or even outright rejected. Of course they do, because this is the world in which we live. Things are being taught which are perverse, and wickedness of man is great in the earth right now in 2021 in the world. And I you know, I try to compare things. I think when I look at what's going on in the world, and this verse always comes to mind, that verse I just read from Genesis chapter 6, and I always think, what could I think in my own mind, what could I think that would be worse than what I'm seeing right now? And I really struggle to think of anything worse. I mean, obviously, you could go around and allow people to kill other people in public or something like that, but Obviously, that's probably not going to happen. I'm talking yeah. about legally. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But I, I just think, what what is the next step of human depravity that we will fall into, that we will be 
more like it was in Genesis 6. And I, I can't see it. I just, I, I'm not a thinker on things like that, but the Bible says that there are people that, that uh, you know, uh, think of new ways of doing evil. And that's what people do. They just want to think of it. And a lot of it starts right here with not teaching your children the right way of the Lord to be obedient to the parents, to be obedient to school teachers and so on like that. And there's chaos in American schools. Teachers cannot do anything. Their kids running around and there's just no way to control them. It's just become like a, a, a jungle out there. But here we are. However, to avoid that happening within the faith, okay, things being skewed or rejected, Paul explicitly directs the children who are in the Lord to obey their parents. If they are in the Lord, this is the expectation of the Lord, and they are to adhere to it. As Paul next notes, for this is right. Even without this word of special revelation, meaning the apostolic authority of Paul's writing, it is understood throughout races, cultures, and societies that this is the normal and proper situation in the family unit. How much more so than when it is an expectation of the Lord who has so structured the family unit? Then you can go right back to the law of Moses. We did this sermon not too long ago. The disobedient son. I mean, the pictures of Christ were unbelievable. But the surface text was given to Israel as a law. This child won't do what he's told. He's disobedient. He's a whatever. You know, he's just et cetera, et cetera. The parents have taken him to the gates of the city and they make their case against him. And it says to take him outside of the gates of the city and stone him. Get rid of a person like that because he's just a bad influence. And by disobeying the parents, that he is ultimately disobeying God. He's showing no respect for what God has said in the fifth commandment. And because of that, he is disobeying God and he is to be destroyed. And there are religions on this planet that still do that to this day. Obviously, Christianity does not. We believe in the grace of Christ and that even disobedient children can be redeemed. But the point of the law wasn't so much that you're supposed to do that because there's no recorded incident of that having been done in Scripture, but it was to lead us to pictures of Christ. And indeed, it was a marvelous passage. But the Lord still expects it nonetheless, even though it was more given for pictures of Christ. It is a part of the law of Moses that was applicable then, and Paul repeats this right now, telling us that this is what we are to do. So, life application, the parents, the parents are to be the leaders in the family. The children are to obey the parents. How unfortunate it is that modern culture has turned this upside down in movies and TV shows. The children tell the parents what they will do, and the parents back down as if the children, if the decision by the child is fixed. We must be careful to reject such displays and not get our family decisions caught up in this perverse role setting. Okay, I have a friend that uh, uh, he knows that his family needs some spiritual direction. His wife is kind of off on a bad tangent, and you know, he's, what should I do? And I said, well, you, according to the Bible, are the spiritual leader of the house. And if you are not leading spiritually, then your wife is. And if she is, those children are getting unbalanced idea of what is proper within the family. And that's even assuming that she's not letting the children run her. And so you want to know how to have chaos in a house. It's because people don't follow the model which is given in scripture. 
Now, obviously, that doesn't apply to everybody. There are people that are very good Christian parents. They raise their children properly. They admonish their children, and the children turn out to do things that are completely, we, this happens, you know, uh, the pastor's daughter. You think of the, the constant theme that you hear about, oh, the pastor's daughter. And so it, it's just the way of the world. Things do happen that are bad that should not happen, and the parents have done everything they should. But the general precept is that the parents teach their children, and the children will grow up properly. Yes. So this isn't talking to unsaved children? Or well, not, not directly. He's speaking to saved believers because he uses the term in the Lord. The precept applies. That's what I said while you were still in the back room. The precept applies, and it should be adhered to. It should be known by everybody that the parents are the leaders of the house. But because people aren't in the Lord, they will do, like I said in the, uh, the life application section, they have movies that exalted children's authority, and the parents backed, okay, okay, whatever you want. And, you know, they are obviously not in the Lord, so they're not going to follow that. And now the whole world sees these TV shows, and they think, oh, it's okay to talk back to my parents. And the parents think, see, I can abdicate, abdicate my responsibility because of this. But Paul is specifically speaking to people when he says, in the Lord. Definitely, he's, he, that is the intent. He's writing to believers about children that are in the Lord. However, and as I said here, where is it? It says, um, I'll read it again. The word in this case is following the family unit of children within a household. In such a case, the children are instructed to obey your parents in the Lord. And the words in the Lord are given to qualify the word obey. Obey in the Lord. Okay. Obey in the Lord, your parents. Okay. So he is speaking to believers and children of believers who are supposed to be being the example for all of the other people in the world. And if we're not, then the world has no proper example left because it's it's Christianity or it's bust. Um, what about it, unsaved children? What do you mean? What are they to do? These talking to them in the Lord. What about unsaved children? They're there to obey their parents. And I say that. I said that, um, uh, whatever. Um, his words do not exclude the fact that all children should so obey their parents, but not all children will receive the words of Paul. Those who do not still have God's general revelation of himself. We should have a general revelation of understanding that we are to obey our parents. But obviously, that is completely skewed. You look at the uh, TV any given night of the week, or you read news articles, and there's kids that have killed one or both of their parents. It happens all the time in the world today, because they see somebody else get away with it. You know, they might go to prison for five years, and then they're out, okay, because they're what do you call it? Um, they're not adults. They're minors. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. Major and minor. They're minors. And so, you know, they, they can kill their parents and get away with it with just a very light sentence. And so there, there's chaos running amok in the world. But the fact is that God wants all children to obey the parents, but Paul is specifically writing to believers. That's the point. There you go. Okay. 6-2. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with the promise. Okay, it would help if I was in the right book. I'm in Genesis 6. Ah. Yeah, okay, let me make sure it says the same thing. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. Yes, it's identical. Okay, are you reading? Yeah, you're still reading your Bible. One of them plagiarized the other yeah, there. obviously mine's plagiarized. Yes, plagiarized. Okay, so here we go. Verse 1 said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, in support of his note that this is right, he cites the fifth of the Ten Commandments. In this, he notes that a special blessing 
is affixed to this command by saying, which is the first commandment with a promise. Okay. Um, where, where does it say that? Yes. Okay. It's right there. Okay. Which is, all right. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't getting into verse three all of a sudden. And, and uh, okay. So it's the first uh, commandment with a promise affixed to it. All right. It is not only the first, it is actually the only commandment of the Ten Commandments with a promise affixed to it. Some argue that the words of the second commandment also bear a promise. It says, therefore, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is not a promise. Rather, it is a general declaration of how the Lord works, okay? And if that was so, then it would say that uh, uh, it, it would mean that Paul's words were contradictory because Paul specifically says that this is the first commandment with a promise, okay? So people didn't think that one very clearly through, but it's not a promise. It's a general declaration of how the Lord works. It is a part of his nature, which is being explained in those words. The promise of the fifth commandment is truly a promise being affixed to the, excuse me, being affixed to show the importance of the command to those who will hear and heed. The promise itself is given in the coming verse. So we've got this verse that tells us it sets up the stage for the next one. The promise will be given in that one. And Paul is laying out his expectations of us in that. So we have a life application that says, the Bible lays great stress on the honoring of parents, and for good reason. If one is unwilling to honor his earthly father and mother, then a disrespect towards God is an obvious result of this attitude of the heart. Our Heavenly Father is infinitely worthy of honor. Let us endeavor to honor Him by honoring our earthly parents in obedience to His word. Once again, I said it in the last verse. I repeat it here, is that if you are not honoring your parents as you should, according to the commandment, because the commandment is repeated in the New Testament, then you are not honoring the Lord. You can't do one and say, I'm doing the other, or you, cannot, you can't not do one and say that you're doing the other. You have to do what is right in the fifth commandment in order to be honoring the Lord in other ways as well. That's all there is to it, and so it is our obligation and our expectation to honor our parents. And as I said right during the sermon last week, it's something I struggle with because, you know, you get in an argument with your mom or your dad, and you say something, and you get, you know, you stew off, and you got these thoughts in your heads, and, you know, it's very hard. You go home, and you feel convicted that, ah, you know, I just wasn't the way I should have been to my mom or my dad. And so the expectation is often harder than uh, we can bring about in ourselves, but it's still the expectation. That is what we are to do, and we are to, uh, I got my mom walking around over there looking at some, is it a spider or something? Oh, go kill that thing. That's what happened. When you get a sushi bar next to you, that's what, I know, it's just a little one, but we got to get, make sure you get squashed because it's probably, anyway. Okay, verse 6-3. It, this is the promise of length of days. Prolong your days. And right. Days may be prolonged from the earth. We, I don't, that up. Okay, I talked about that during the Ten Commandments, and I think I repeated it during the giving of the second Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Okay. And it can mean, uh, you've got me off guard on that one, 
And so, uh, uh, I, 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 what's that? You're probably going to cover it. No, I don't think I do. And uh, there, I'm, I'm trying to think. There were about three different possibilities for what that means. And length of days, is it your years being long in your life? Is it your years being long in the land? It's your years being long. Um, and I evaluated that. I'm sorry, Burke. I can't give you, you know, there's only so much you can hold in your brain, and mine is not a big holder of things. So, um, uh, Great. hang on just a sec. The, the, uh, it was spoken to Israel. It was spoken to the people. I, I, you're going to have to go back and watch that sermon, the Exodus uh, 20 or the Deuteronomy 5 sermon, and it'll give you all the information you need because I just don't think that I, I'm going to give you a proper analysis of that, and I'll say something that is incorrect. But there's two or three different views on it, and I talk about them there. So, And if I can remember before the end of the class, I'll stop and we'll talk about it. But yeah, they're, they're, I, I wish I had done that here. But you know, once I've done something somewhere else, I will usually just say it's there, and I know they can go there, and so I don't put it, I don't want, I hate being repetitive about things. Well, I found that that's not the right thing to do, is I need to be repetitive, because you forget more than you well, remember. Well, this is the first commandment with the promise. The yeah. promise was that their days would be prolonged. That's right. And like I said, there's two or three different ways of viewing that. So you'd have to go back and watch the sermon. Now, if you want, I can stop it. I can pull the sermon up right it's on not, the fine. internet. You're okay. Fine. All right. Six, three, then. Okay, six three. Uh, okay, that it might go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Okay, I just don't think that I'm going to talk about that, but I mean uh, the the different options. But we'll see right now. Okay, the words here are reflective of the promise made in the Ten Commandments to Israel, both in Exodus twenty twelve and Deuteronomy five sixteen. There's a portion he omits from his citation, though. In the Ten Commandments, it says that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you, okay? The people of Israel were promised an inheritance in the land of Canaan. In disobedience to the Lord, they would be exiled from that land. For them, to be exiled was a form of punishment. It's one of the greatest forms of punishment that they can face, okay? And so a long life would be one of enduring that punishment. In other words, the true prosperity of Israel is tied into the land of Canaan, not merely to a long life. And that's going to be seen more and more in the next coming sermons. I'm uh, up to Deuteronomy 29. Uh, I think I'm starting Deuteronomy 30 next Monday. So I finished chapter 29. And there's a lot about that. The people of Israel are inextricably tied to the land of Israel. There's no doubt about it. And uh, as a matter of fact, I can tell you without giving all of the intro to the sermon away that the land while Israel is in the land and they are obedient to the Lord is productive. And as they are not obedient to the Lord, the land is less productive. We know that like the famine at the time of Elijah and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then in the time of exile, the land is completely waste. It's just barren. There's nothing left of it. And that is perfectly detailed in the historical record apart from the Bible. It's very clearly detailed, and I'll talk about that in some detail in uh, chapter 29. So uh, the thing is that Israel gets back into the land, and now here in the 1940s until now in the 2021s, they have taken the land that was completely barren, completely desolate, and they have brought it back to a state of 
you know, just abundance. Okay. <laughs> yes. But the problem with that is they have not credited the Lord for it. It is the Lord who has done that for them. Even if their physical efforts were involved, the Lord returned them. The Lord has watched over them. And so they, they, there's a problem with Christians in America that they take the status of Israel and they go in one direction or they go the other too far. Okay, the ones that say that Israel is out, I did a sermon on that just a while ago, the divorce sermon, okay? They say Israel's out, they're under the curse, they're, you know, they, there's no hope for them at all, okay? And they're, the people that are there anyway are not the people that the Bible speaks of. They're done. That's taking it too far in one direction. The other direction is what many evangelicals take. They go so far as to say that we need to uh, support Israel at all costs. We need to uh, pat them on the back and say what a great group of people they are and that they are uh, God's people and that they are now restored to God's land because of his purposes, which is true. But at the same time, they need to understand that without Jesus Christ, they are not God's people in the ultimate sense. And I'll actually talk about that in this week's sermon. There are different categories that people will uh, ascribe to Israel, and I'll detail, I think, four of them, and then I'll describe that. But if we take it too far and we say, oh, then, you know, Israel, everything that they're doing is right, then we are not telling the truth of the matter because everything Israel does is not right. They have gay parades in Tel Aviv. They have gay parades in Jerusalem. They have not called on the Lord as a nation. As a matter of fact, very, very few in the nation have called on the Lord. And so we cannot say that they are right with the Lord. So we have to have a balance in how we approach Israel, okay? And that's we don't want to say that God has rejected them because he will never reject his promises to the fathers or to them as based on the covenants to them. At the same time, they have a responsibility within the body that they are to be right with the Lord. And being right with the Lord now does not mean building a temple and doing sacrifices. It means receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. And until they do that, they are not right with the Lord. So be careful how you uh, handle your discussions about Israel. The reason why is we do not want to give anybody a false impression that they are okay with God without Jesus. It's not true, and we need to be absolutely adamant about that. When we talk about the blessing of Israel, the wonderful things that they have done, and so on, that we don't take it too far and give them the impression that what they have done is their own doing and they're great because of it. It is not the case. Okay, so I'll read that again. The people of Israel were promised an inheritance in the land of Canaan. In disobedience to the Lord, they would be exiled from that land. For them to be exiled was a form of punishment. And so a long life would be one of enduring that punishment. That is where they have been and where they rightfully should still be because they have not taken care of the things that are required to bring them into the right covenant relationship with them. But God has put them in the land first, and then he will deal with them. Okay, in other words, the true prosperity of Israel is tied into the land of Canaan, not merely to a long life, long physical life. There was no need for this statement to be included by Paul when addressing the Gentiles, and so he dropped that part out. Okay, there's no earthly inheritance which comes through faith in Christ. Israel has an earthly inheritance as a people, as a nation, okay? But every Jew that comes to Christ also has a heavenly inheritance. So we need to make sure that the two things 
are kept separate, but we understand that God is doing an extra thing with Israel. There is the individual salvation, there is the corporate body, the national salvation, and that has not yet happened. Even if individuals are coming to Christ, it will not happen until uh, the corporate salvation will not happen until the nation, meaning the leadership of Israel, calls on Christ. And how do we know that's true? Where is that recorded? It's right in the New Testament. I say it about five times a month, and we only have four sermons a month, so I say it a lot. Where is it? Jesus himself says it. He says specifically, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I'd long to gather you as a hen would gather its chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. You shall not see me again until you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is up to Israel, and he's speaking to Jerusalem, meaning the leadership of the country, until you acknowledge me as Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I am not going to return to you. And they are going to continue to suffer until that day happens. As a matter of fact, Zechariah 12, is it? I think it's Zechariah 12 says that two-thirds of them are going to die in the process, and the rest of them are going to have a horrible existence until they come to the resolution that we are going to acknowledge Christ as our Lord. It's right there in the Bible. It's his words. He said it. How anybody, these replacement theologians, can say that there is no plan for Israel when Jesus himself said that. Now, I'll tell you one thing. One argument that they have, and I may have said this before, but uh, it's still worthy of repeating, is that uh, there are two accounts. You've got Matthew and Mark, where Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One of them, the book of Matthew, actually, he says that, and then later is the, um, what do you call it? Um, help me out, uh, Palm Sunday. And he's coming into Jerusalem, and what do they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And so they say, see, that was fulfilled afterward. No, one, it, obviously it wasn't, even adult can tell that, but two, Matthew is not chronological. Mark is chronological. And Mark shows you that he says it after, not before. Okay? And so I'm talking about his words to them of condemnation. Okay? So it's important to understand that Jesus himself said those things to Israel. They are not yet fulfilled. There is a purpose. Oh, and you know, I just remembered some of the intro, I think, to the sermon. We'll also talk about this on Sunday as well. If they really truly believe that they've replaced Israel, then why don't they just say it? bring Jesus back. Yeah, absolutely. If you're Israel, just bring him back. Say it. Okay. All right. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, There's no earthly inheritance which comes through faith in Christ. Therefore, this is a general blessing which is pronounced upon any and all, Jew or Gentile, who come to Christ. So I am addressing your question, Burke. Sorry about that. Things can be expected to go well with us, and we can generally anticipate a long and fruitful life on the earth when we honor our parents. As this is a general promise, it's not a completely, it's not prescriptive in the sense that this will happen if you do it. It's a general promise, okay? And because of that, it cannot be expected in all instances. People get into car accidents and they die. All right, whatever. Thing, bad things happen to good people, they say. Well, this is a general principle that if you live this way, 
you can generally expect that your life will be long on the earth, okay? Like the Proverbs of Solomon, it is a broad guideline that we can anticipate, not a blank guarantee. In honoring one's parents, things can normally be expected to go well for us. And when we don't, they can generally be expected to not go well with us. So that's the answer, Burke. Uh, I, I go into it in more detail in the Exodus and Deuteronomy sermons. I know it do, because it specifically says to Israel, the land, where it doesn't say that in the New Testament. And so, you ha- and so I, I won't get into that, because I'm going to say something in this week's sermon. Yes, it's this week's sermon that uh, will, it has nothing to do with that, but it's a point that I was about to make, which I don't want to give now. Okay, life application. If you want things to go well with you, following the precepts laid out in the Bible is a good way for that to come about. In not following them, you will pierce yourself with many thorns, but in following them, you can generally expect things to turn out in a positive manner. Now, as I said, we've got prescriptions from Paul. You were to do this, and that means we are to do it. It's prescriptive. It's not descriptive, just describing, you know, life in general. It is something that you are to do, okay? But the precept itself may have a general tone to it. And you need to consider that because some things are absolute, some things are general. And we know that this is general because we know people that are obedient to their parents that die from whatever, okay? So you need to take everything and think it through. Why is this happening? And then consider that the Lord is sovereign over all things. This does not contradict his word, and therefore it happened, and we need to accept that it happened, okay? Things like that are general in nature, but they are generally true, okay? Yes, you had something? Your, your proclamation where he talks about Jerusalem is in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Yep. And 13th chapter of Luke. Uh, Mark. No, Luke. Okay, yes, it's in Luke as well. Luke yeah. 1334. Right. And so that, that's where he proclaimed this thing. Absolutely. He would come to me. Yeah, and he says it in Mark as well. Well, I don't I, know. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty know. sure of that, and that Mark is chronological, and that's why it comes after. But even if it doesn't come after, the point is that obviously he is speaking about something way future when he says it, such as in Matthew. You know, only a person that wants to believe that Israel is out would say, oh, that is obviously fulfilled at Christ's, you know, coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. All right. Absolutely not. That, that, it, it takes somebody that is biased against Israel to come to that conclusion. No doubt about it. Okay. So um, Luke 13, Matthew 23, you said, okay, there you go. And I'm certain that it's in the book of Mark 2, and it comes after instead of before like uh, Matthew, which comes before instead of after. Okay, so 6-4. Okay, 6-4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Oh, I used to love to exasperate my children. This one says, and he goes laugh. <laughs> and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, it says, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So you say exasperate, this one says, uh, provoke your children to wrath. I don't know if I ever provoke my children to wrath, but it, the word exasperate probably goes pretty well with how I treat them. Even to this day, I love to, you know, give them a good noogie or something. Okay, uh, 6-4. Paul's words now are directed to the head of the household, the father. The word is pater, and it is generally used of a father, an elder, an ancestor, or a senior. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, 
A plural form of this word is used to speak of the parents of Moses. It is certainly correctly translated as fathers here. Excuse me. It is certainly correctly translated as fathers here as they are considered the head of their respective houses, as has already been established. However, if a house is lacking a father for whatever reason, the word is broad enough to speak of the one who is in charge of it. The responsibility does not change if the actual father is not in the picture. Okay? In other words, you got a family without a father, then the person that's in charge needs to step up and take control of the, the family. Okay? And so, um, uh, who was it? Uh, the guy, he's the Seventh-day Adventist that was um, ran for president, the black guy. Um, uh, uh, why can't I remember his name? He, I, I can see his face right in front of me. The brain surgeon, great guy. Oh, uh, ben. Ben Carson. Thank you. Ben Carson. Thank you. I, I, okay. So apparently he grew up under his mother. All right. And she did a great job of raising them. If I'm remembering the story right. If I'm not, I apologize. But is that correct? Mama shaking her head. Okay. It is true. He had a great mother that was a godly person and raised him properly. And what did he do? He turned out to be a brain surgeon. And I got to tell you what, it doesn't take, uh, we use the, I was going to make a joke. It doesn't take a brain surgeon, but anyway, it's, it's a difficult thing to do is to cut somebody's brain open and not destroy that person in the process. And this guy was apparently one of the greatest that we had in the nation. So anyway, um, Ben Carson was brought up under his parents because he didn't have a father in the house. So somebody has to step up in there. And then, of course, you've got the old uh, saying where the father dies and the oldest son, the mother, says, well, you're the man of the house now. Um, I would be careful with that. If the boy is too young, it could lead to other type of problems like arrogance or whatever. But if he's a responsible person and he's old enough and the mother thinks that he is you know, responsible enough to be the man of the house, then let it be because that's you know what the directive is, is that the man is to lead in a Christian household. But like I said, you want to be careful with that because she's got her responsibility and she can't just shirk it and say, okay, you're six years old, but now you're going to run this house. It doesn't work that way. So everything has to be done with obviously a, a sense of thinking things through. But the father being the head of the house is told, do not provoke your children to wrath. The word provoke is paro, paro gizo. It comes from two words, para, which means from close beside, and orgizo, which means become angry. Combined, they give the sense of rousing someone to anger in a way that really pushes someone's buttons. That helps word studies. The father is not to act in this manner and thus bring his child to a state of wrath. Instead, Paul offers sound advice, which is to which is all too much lacking in today's world. How are we doing tonight? Doing wonderful. Good. Paul offers sound advice, which is all too much lacking in today's world. He says that fathers are instead to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Like I said with my friend, I told him, man, you're the spiritual head of the household. If you're not going to take over and take lead in this, whatever is going on in your wife's mind is going to prevail. Because people need spiritual training. And they're going to get it one way or another. And if the father is disconnected to the house, they're going to get it somewhere. They're either going to get it from mom, or they're going to get it from the TV, or they're going to get it from the neighbor who might be a Satan worshiper. You have no idea. But 
People will assimilate something of a religious nature into their lives, and it may even be atheism, you know, which is its own religion, okay? This is the way these things are. It's very sad, but we're to bring the children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That is what is the responsibility of us, and if we don't do that, if we don't talk about the Lord, if we don't uh, speak about the Lord, if we don't train in the way of the Lord, then things are not going to go well. That's all there is to it. So there are two separate ideas here. The first is training or nurture. This is whatever care and handling is necessary for the child to grow into a responsible person. Okay, and you can do that apart from the Lord. You got responsible people in Japan that have never heard of who Jesus is. Okay, it's a very responsible society. All right, and that's the training and nurture. And one of the things about Japan, and you're not going to believe this, my wife is sitting here, so you know I'm telling the truth, because if I wasn't, then she'd be like, that's not the way it is. But if you're in Japan and you're at a restaurant, and they, you know, a family comes in with a couple of little kids, those kids will run around, they'll beat on other people that are eating dinner, the parents won't say anything. Nothing. Isn't that right? They'll just come over, a little kid will come over and you'll see that I got yellow hair and come and pull on it, right? Now in America, if you did that, that kid would probably end up in the hospital, okay? But they just let them run around, do whatever they want. They want to take food and throw it at somebody, they will. I remember uh, seeing a video of her nephew, and he's in the house, and he's running around, and he's poking holes in the shoji, the shoji door, just poking holes in it. They said nothing. Let him destroy the house. And they get it out of him, and by the time they're six years old, they become completely disciplined children. It's a totally different way of looking at things than America. It is completely different. We would be just beside ourselves. We would never allow that. But isn't it right that by six, maybe seven at the latest, those kids are completely disciplined, totally. They're given complete freedom for the first several years of their lives, and they can do almost anything, and nobody will say anything. Not another parent to them that's getting hit by that kid, not... You know, if he's sitting out there and throwing rocks at cars on the road, he won't say a word. It's unbelievable. And yet they turn out to be the most disciplined group of people. Well, look at, you know, I mean, they could have won the war. They could have won World War II with their diligence, with their industry, with their ability to make things work. And however that happens, I don't understand it. I never got used to it, but that is the way that the society is. It's uncanny. Uh, well, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I never understood it, and I never got used to it. And that may have changed. I don't know if that's because that was back in the 80s when I was there. But I'm sure that that type of thing doesn't go away in a society. I was completely floored being in a restaurant and seeing a kid running around doing things that the whole family would have been kicked out in America. The whole family. There you go. So just the, the way things were. And uh, so that's the, as I said, the training and the nurture, the care and the nurture side of it. And we have that. Let me see. Where was I on that? It says um, uh, state of wrath. Much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Training or nurture. This is whatever care and handling is necessary for the child to grow into a responsible person. And yes, they do. They grow into responsible children, uh, people in Japan, despite that, that whatever they do is use. Okay. The word is paideia. And it actually carries with it a stern aspect. It means discipline, training, and education of children. Hence, instruction, chastisement, correction. Once again, that helps word studies. Okay, so uh, you don't get that in Japan up into a certain age. And then all of a sudden, they, they get it. They are very well maintained as people 
and they become, I don't want to, when I was in the subway system with one of my friends, he stopped and there's a big mural on the wall. And in America, up until recently, you know, the real iconic thing that you would think of as the American tradition was the Marlboro Man. He's out on a horse by himself. He's living his life. He's the man that's setting the example in the frontier, right? That was, and that was our ideal of the guy that is, he goes into the military and he's the man that makes all of the, the big things. And it was completely the opposite on this mural in Japan. Everybody was being depicted as being one unit, one, one person. This is Japan. We are one people. And he read it to me and I thought that is exactly 100% the opposite of the American way, 100%. But that is their attitude, okay? So they will now, as a society, if somebody gets out of line, handle them completely differently than we will handle them. Okay, we'll have a trial and we'll do this and that. But um, they don't tolerate people that are not in conformity with their society at all. In America, the people that aren't in conformity are the ideal almost, but that's not the way it is. And it's so heavily imposed into their psyche. The first week, I think it was, and I, when I arrived in Japan, there was a bus driver and he got in an accident and some people were hurt and he was so overwhelmed with grief, he hung himself. And this is the standard over there. They, they, uh, they mourn over their inability to meet the standard or to do something that would harm the collective. And so I never forgot that. It was right away and I thought, oh, the poor guy, you know, why? But it was a shame to him, and it was he brought shame on his family, and everybody around him would have known that he's the guy that three people got hurt in his bus, and he couldn't live with it. And so this is it's a very common thing in Japan for people to uh, not ever want to embarrass the society, not to embarrass the family, not to embarrass the honor. It's a completely different way than here, but there you go. Uh, instruction, chastisement, correction. We're either going to get it from our parents, we might get it from the society, or we may impose it on ourselves if we are of that type of stamina, but most people are not. If they're not getting correction, they're out running around in the streets doing what these people have been doing for the past year. I'm not talking about 2021, but in 2020, burning down cities. What's that guy's name? Kyle Rittenhouse. It's in uh, being tried right now for shooting four people. And, you know, talk about a lack of, of, of caring for people in their own person is the FBI has been withholding evidence so that this could go to trial. And it was just released yesterday or the day before where they actually have a person with a gun, a 9mm, that shot at him. They see the muzzle flash and everything. And if that was given out by the FBI before the trial, they would not have taken it to trial. But what I'm saying is that our society has devolved to the point where we no longer hold people accountable that burn down buildings. Okay? And so that's a real problem. Okay, this then includes the idea of correction and punishment. It has to come from somewhere. If it doesn't come from the person, if it doesn't come from the family, if it doesn't come from the society, it is eventually going to come from God. But punishment and correction is necessary for the human person. The book of Proverbs gives several examples of what this word certainly includes. So I'm going to take you to First Proverbs uh, 13.24. And it says there, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Okay, now that's the word of the Lord. I don't care if it's a general precept as far as the correction of the child. It is the word of the Lord that a person is demonstrating a hatred 
toward his child for not correcting him. Once again, at what age is it supposed to be? In what, you know, how, how much correction is he supposed to get? Is he supposed to be beaten once or 55 times? Obviously not because the, the law says no more than 39, even for an offender. But you get the point is that uh, it's up to the parent to decide what it is. But if you're not going to discipline your child, the Bible says you hate him. Okay, and then Proverbs chapter 23, it says, let's see here, 23 verses 13 and 14. Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Okay, there you go with that. Oh, talking about that, just today, I'm glad that verse came up. Just today, I typed Acts uh, 2, let me find this, I'll tell you what I typed, and then I learned something that I did not know. And so I'm going to share it with you because we all might be raptured before the commentary comes out in 12 days, and uh, I just thought it was an interesting thing that I had never realized. Acts 2, he uh, cites Joel, and then he gets down citing David, and he said, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Okay, well... The older King Jimmy Bible says, for you will not leave my soul in hell. Hades is a literal translation of the word from the Greek, okay? Hell used to mean what Hades means today. It doesn't mean you're going to hell and you're going to burn in fire forever. It's Hades. It's a, in other words, when they translated the King Jimmy, it was hell meant Hades. Or in other words, Sheol, the place of the dead. It didn't mean the place of permanent torture. I've always thought of hell as the place of permanent torture because that's how our modern, you know, thinking of the word is. But that's not it at all. But if you want to think of hell in the Bible, that would be what we think today, not not the older meaning of hell, but the meaning that we think of today, that is known as what in the Bible? The place of punishment and torture forever. What is that known as in the Bible? The biblical description of it. It's called the lake of fire. fire. There you go. Okay, that is hell. Okay, so I was listening to a sermon. Uh, uh, you know, somebody sent me a link, and I thought, what a great point. What a great point. He said that nobody is, in, using the modern term of hell, not the older version, okay, the modern term, punishment and torture forever. He said, do you know that no person has ever gone to hell? Because you're always hearing stories. People, I, I went to hell and I, I, I'm bringing a story back to tell you you want to avoid this place. You've seen the videos. You've seen people make these claims. You've read the books. This preacher said no person has ever gone to hell. Okay. The hell, not the hell of the old days, the hell that we think of now. And he's absolutely right. How do we know that's true? Because the judgment and being cast into the lake of fire isn't until the end of the book of Revelation. So anybody that says they've gone to hell in a book or in a movie or on a YouTube video, don't bother with it because it's not true. It so is untrue. What? Dante. Yeah. yeah, so much for Dante and so much for these people that make these claims. It, it was a great point. I had never sat down and thought that through. And it's probably because of things like the King Jimmy Bible, which uses the term hell in the old sense, not in the new. But it's a great point if you are sent a book that says that, just take the book and throw it away. It's not worth your time because it's not true. Okay. Anyway, I just thought that was a very interesting thing is that hell in the old days did not mean what it does today. And now you know that. So if we get raptured before that is published in 12 days, then you already have that squiggle on your brain. Okay. Um, we're going to go now the same word that we were just referring to 
and uh, it speaks of padaya, um, instruction, chastisement, correction. The same word is used in Hebrews 12 to explain our relationship with the Lord just as a son is dealt with by his own father. The word translated as chastening there, okay? This is from Hebrews chapter 12. Boy, Hebrews is such a great book. We're going to be there in no time at all because we're in Ephesians 6 right now. So we're going to be in Hebrews just so soon. And I can't wait. It's just one of the most wonderful books, okay? Out of the 66 books of the Bible, it is one of my favorite 66 books. Okay, Hebrews 12 and then verse 7 through 9. I'm going to start back in 5, though, just so you can see this. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, that word, God deals with you as sons, as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have been partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So there you go. That's the word. That's the idea that we're getting. God chastens his sons, and yes, that is written to the Hebrews. It's written to the Hebrew people. But the principle is true for us. How do we know that? Because we are sons, according to Paul in his writings. We are children of God. We are sons of God. Uh, different terminology is used for different purposes, but we are in a sonship relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. We are in Christ, and therefore we are sons of God. Okay, And so when we do something wrong, God does not rob away our salvation and say, I'm casting you into the lake of fire. Instead, what he does is he chastens us. It's intended to correct us. If we're wise, we will take that correction and we will apply it to our lives. And if we don't, we are the only ones who are going to be suffering harm from it. So Hebrews 12, 7 through 9, as a confirmation of this, a variant of the word is used by Jesus concerning our relationship with him. Again, it is translated as chasten in Revelation 3, verse 19. And there he says, hang on a second here, 3, verse 19. I'm going to go, yes, that's correct. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Okay, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Have you ever seen the picture of Jesus standing yeah. at a door? He's knocking. I know you know this because we talk about it in the projects, but what's what's peculiar about that painting? No handle. There's no knob for him to get in the door. In other words, you have to allow him into your life. That was genius. Whoever did that painting originally thought that one through very well. Jesus is not going to force himself in by opening the door and regenerating you in order to believe so that you will believe so that he's forced you into his kingdom. He gives you the choice to come in. Okay, so that's uh, Revelation 3.19. The second word that Paul uses translated as admonition is nuthesia. It means properly setting, placing the mind through God-inspiring warning. Once again, helps word studies. We are to improve the minds of our children 
through teaching them to reason things out so that they will come to godly solutions in their thought process. Okay, that's the beginning of critical thinking in a person. Uh, I think I typed it either for a sermon or a devotional. I can't remember uh, in the past couple days. But critical thinking is something that is normally not taught, okay, in schools anymore. As a matter of fact, they dare not teach children critical thinking because they want a nation full of zombies. They want children that they can control so that the government can take and completely control every aspect of human life, all right? That's 100% certain. How do we know that it's not a conspiracy theory by Charlie? It's because there is going to be a one-world government. There's going to be a one-world monetary system. There's going to be a one-world religion. We know that's true. And you can't have those kind of things if people are independently thinking. So they don't want to teach critical thinking. And if they do, they're going to teach it incorrectly. But critical thinking is to start with the parent. We ask children questions to get them to think things through. And by doing that, they have to think things through. If you just tell them something and say, don't do it, well, that doesn't mean they're not going to do it. Uh, don't put your finger in there because if you do, you're going to get electrocuted. Well, what do you mean? Uh, okay, so we ask them to think things through. Okay, we might use an object lesson by calling the neighbor's child over and saying, here, <laughs> whatever. But um, it's just, it's uh, important, as it says, read it again. It means properly setting, meaning placing the mind through God-inspired warning. All right, this is what we're to do. And if you want your children to think critically about Scripture, you will do it in relation to Scripture. You're not going to do it in relation to, you know, something that has nothing to do with Scripture. You want people to be included in the subject, and you ask them questions, and you get them to think those things through. Okay, we are to improve the minds of our children through teaching them to reason things out so that they will come to godly solutions in their thought process. When Paul says, admonition of the Lord, that is exactly what he means. We are to speak of, explain, and correctly and correct faulty notions of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? If people took that approach, and they were in, we'll say, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were to take the Bible and ask proper questions and say, what does this mean, without giving them presuppositions in their head, there would be no Jehovah's Witnesses. There wouldn't be one on the earth. There would be no Mormons on this planet. There would be no Seventh-day Adventists on this planet because these people have incorrect ideas about theology because they have not questioned their children properly concerning what the Bible is actually saying. It's an important thing to do. And so in this world, we have people that are completely untrained in what the Bible says, and that's why we have things called preachers. Preachers are supposed to do that instead of some of the things that they do in the pulpit, I don't know. But we are supposed to train people and get them to think through what is going on in Scripture. Um, you know, here's a perfect example of this. This is a perfect example of this. Asking a question to elicit a response, okay? You've got the, the, uh, the cult of King James onlyism. They're very easy to pick on because their arguments are so weak. But you've got this group of people that believe that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible. And one of their arguments, for example, just came to mind. They use this all the time is that, um, you know, the versions, the NIV and the NASB and all of these versions that have come out, all that's done is it's promoted apostasy and people are falling away from the Word of God because of those versions. Do you know that almost every major cult in the world 
came from the King James only version. It came from the Seventh Day Adventists, the Mormons, the uh, who did I mention? The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. All of them use the King James version. It's but you're not getting people to think clearly. If you would turn the question around when they say something like that and ask them, okay, I'll accept your premise if it's true. Now let me ask you a question: Who? What Bible did they use? in the Seventh-day Adventists when they first started. And if they go and they're honest and they research and they'll say, uh, what's her name, Ellen G. White? Oh, well, she taught from the King James Version, okay? What we're supposed to do is to ask people questions, to get them to think things through. And I don't care if it's about the Trinity, I don't care if it's about the Sabbath observance, whatever it is, you ask questions and then let them think it through and if they are incorrect, you'll show them where they are. If they're correct, then you should say, you know what, that's right, I've been wrong all along. That's what should happen, but it's not happening in the church, and so people have incorrect ideas about theology, and as I said, that's why we have 19,352 different denominations in America. There's so much diversity of thinking, and I'm not trying to say that I'm right, okay? I'm saying that this is how we find out if we are wrong, but you have to determine is what Charlie is saying in this class correct or not. And that is your responsibility by going home and asking the Bible questions and asking, you know, the people in your house questions about these things. Teaching and the fear and the admonition of the Lord, okay? Isn't the King James Bible also a version? Yes, it is. It's a version. Well, of what? It, well, that's right. But you know what? They, they will, and I uh, have talked about this before, but they will say that uh, they... It is the only inspired version that they went to the proper text and they are the only ones that translated it properly and that there is nobody else that does, etc. You get all of these kind of arguments within their thinking and it's all incorrect. Anyway, in doing these things, we will have children who also grew up in the way of the Lord and who are set to continue this same training in their own children in the future. Okay, life application. It is never too late to begin the process described in these verses today. Never, okay? If you're in a church where all they're doing is giving you life application sermons, it's not too late for you to go to a church where they have more in-depth sermons, okay? One of my friends, I was talking to him this morning, he called about his wife, we mentioned her, Jackie, and he said that sometimes he'll go to Alistair Begg's sermons and he'll listen. I love to listen to the guy because he's Scottish and he's got that great Scottish accent and it always sounds authoritative and wonderful. Okay, I haven't heard him in a long time because I don't have time to listen to him anymore. But he says the guy has completely grown since his earlier sermons. He said if you listen to his earlier sermons and you listen to him now, he's much more developed in his theology. If anybody listens to Alistair Begg, you could tell me if you agree with that, but he, he could definitely tell a difference. All right, so it's never too late to begin the process described in these verses. And if Alistair Begg has been pursuing that process in his own mind, then his sermons have gone up and they've gone up and they've become better and better, whatever. Okay, although it is right that the process begin as early as possible, many do not come to Christ until later in life. From the moment this happens, though, it is the responsibility of the parent to share in the knowledge of the Lord in order for the child to know and understand what has been instilled in the parent. And in this respect, what I just said, the parent, Paul says, not many of you have, uh, I, in other words, he says, I brought you, I birthed you in Christ. He is a father to them. So that's what he is doing for them. He is being a father to them. Even in their older age, he brought them to Christ, and now it is he that is getting them to understand the way of the Lord. 
So if you bring somebody to Christ and you have the time and the ability to train them, you should do so. If you don't have the ability or the time to do so, then you should tell them to find a good church that preaches from the Bible, that accepts the core doctrines, and you know maybe have the core doctrines ready for them to accept. Because if they don't have those, they may end up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. You never know. So, whatever. Um, you was talking about the CDs and hell. Yeah. The, the thought came to me about the rich man and Lazarus. Yes. It says in Hades he lifted up his eyes. I'm sure the old King James says in hell he lifted up his It probably does. As a matter of fact, I, I checked the King James on if the word is Hades, then they did say hell because. Every time that the word, they were very consistent about it, they said hell. Every time, I think it's used 10 times, the word Hades, in the New Testament, every single time it said hell. So if that is uh, one of the verses, then it does say hell. And, and that's why people get these incorrect thoughts in their heads, is because you've got an outdated version where the words no longer mean the same thing that they do today. And so people are now coming to incorrect theology with the King James Version because they don't know that the original word no longer means what it means today. Okay, and so, so you see what I'm saying. That's another argument against him, and there are a thousand of them. There's a thousand arguments against it, but in fact, um, uh, I almost cited that in the verse today, but I got very long with the, the uh, commentary, uh, Acts whatever I said it was, Acts 2, 26 or 7, whatever, but I did cite the one from Samuel of the Old Testament, because the witch at Endor in 1, uh, 1 Samuel verse, chapter 28 actually brings Samuel out of the pit, okay? And so I cited that one. I thought I should cite the one on Lazarus, and I said, I'm not going to because they got the point, and I don't want to beat a point to death. But the same thing is true in the New Testament, is that he is in the repository of the dead, okay? And Jesus even shows that in the repository of the dead, there are people that are in pain, just like, uh, uh, what's his name? And then you've got... Um, uh, the um, Samuel, who was in a place of comfort. Why have you brought me up? He was comfortable. He was enjoying himself. So there, uh, I, I don't want to get into it all. It's a great commentary. Wait 12 days and then you can read it. How's that? Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm kidding. Okay. We got one more and we'll be done. Six, five. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Okay. This one says bond servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Okay, so um, bond servants, and he's talking about slaves, bond servants, and they are obligated to masters. The Bible does not hide these things. It never says that slavery is inappropriate, but it does say, Paul does say, if you can get your freedom, do so. But if you are a slave, here is how you are to conduct yourself. And there's about eight or nine verses that Paul very clearly talks about those issues, okay? That is a part of the human condition. It's something that happens. It happens in the world today. I may include something on uh, Sunday's CG report about modern slavery right here in the United States of America. I may not, but we'll see. But it's something that is going on. It is a part of the human condition. And in America, it's supposed to be illegal. And so if people do it, they're supposed to be arrested. In some countries of the world, there is still slavery going on. And nobody says anything about it because it's a cultural thing. Okay. But we won't get into that. The point is that the Bible addresses this as something that is a part of the human condition. Whether it's right or wrong is not the subject here. 
what the subject is, is if you were in this position, here's what you were to do. Okay, Paul now turns from the immediate family within the household to those who are almost as close and maybe even closer as far as daily contact is concerned. The term bond servants is as good as one can get from the Greek word doulos. The term applies to one who is bound to the service of another. This could be a voluntary subjection or an involuntary duty. And it can also go so far as being a slave. Their rights were extremely limited, even in the best of cases. In some instances, they have virtually no rights at all. And yet, there is an irony in this status which will be fully versed in will be fully revealed in verse 9. Without jumping ahead in too great of detail, it can be said that all are slaves in one way or another, every single person on this planet. For the Christian bondservant, Paul instructs them to be obedient to those who are your masters. Despite the many difficult rigors often suffered under cruel masters, Paul simply makes the command. He doesn't qualify it with if they are good masters, nor does he give any hint that they have a right to rebel. He doesn't do that at all. He never does that. The status of slaves or bondservants was simply a fact of life. Those who were bound were to accept it. However, he does give a note, oh, here it is, concerning this elsewhere that is worth citing, and that's in 1 Corinthians 7. Take you there really quickly. I know I already cited it, but we'll let you hear it right from Paul's hand through the word 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20. And it says, let each one of you remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Okay, so he does say that if you can be made free, take advantage of it. But you are not there to go changing things just because you're a Christian. All of a sudden you can rebel against your master. That's not allowed. However, as long as a person was bound, they were to be obedient to their masters. And yet Paul adds on a descriptor for them to consider. It is a master according to the flesh. In other words, there are human limitations which are being spoken of here. Paul is implying that they are bondservants of another as well, which is not according to the flesh. It is for this reason that they were to be obedient to their human master. The same phrase is used again in Colossians 3, verse 22, but, and by using it as he does, Paul is letting them know that these human limitations to this human slavery have no control over the spirit. Man may subjugate their bodies, but their spirit is owned by and in the complete control of the Lord. It was an encouragement to them that their time of freedom would surely come. And so for whatever duration of their bondage to human masters, bond servants were to be obedient, as he says, with fear and trembling. This is the same term used by Paul on several different occasions. And it is especially used of a person who is under a special responsibility to the Lord. Even though they are under the will of a human master, they are to be concerned that this will is satisfied. This is to be true even to the point that they would be afraid and ashamed if the master was displeased. Okay, he hasn't said anything about not being an obedient slave. He hasn't said anything about the master being a bad one or a good one. He hasn't said anything about any of those particular issues. He's saying that if you are a slave, you are to be obedient. 
Now, today, as I said, we don't have slavery, authorized slavery in America, but we do have a job relationship, which really didn't exist in the Roman Empire. You go to work, you earn your pay, you come home and you do your thing, okay? But while you were at work, the same precept definitely holds true. You are to be respectful and obedient to your boss. Now, that's being lost in this country about as quickly as it can go, but that is what is expected of people. You are hired by that person. He is the one that has been gracious enough to give you the job. And if you're in the government, of course, that doesn't apply. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to show up on time. You can't get fired. And that's the way it is. But this is the way that things are to be conducted. I might even address that. I don't know. But anyway, um, let's see here. Even though they are under the will of a human master, they are to be concerned that this will is satisfied. This is to be true even to the point that they would be afraid and ashamed if the master was displeased. The desire for this should be so ingrained in them that it is not just an external fear and trembling, but one which is in sincerity of heart. Paul's words, insincerity of heart. They should truly be concerned that their performance was spotless before their masters, just as it would be to Christ. And this is the way that we are con to conduct ourselves in our employment as well. We should never say, I have done poorly and I don't feel bad about it. Because you are a reflection of Jesus Christ. You were to say, I've done my very best. And if he doesn't accept it, at least Christ knows that I did my best. They were representatives of Christ. To be slack in their human duties would then reflect on their spiritual devotion to the Lord. Paul wanted this to never be the case. Okay, life application and we are done. Just in time. In today's world, here it is. We have employers rather than masters. But the premise of this verse should hold true in such cases. Our duties are to our employers, and they should be performed to the highest degree of trustworthiness as possible. In so acting, they will see that our conduct is without fault and will note that we can be trusted. If this is so, then it may lead them to wanting to know the Lord as well. Everything we do should be geared towards people wanting to know the Lord. Okay, it's not always uh, easy. There are times when we fail at that, but the Lord understands our failings, even if he can't forgive them in the sense that you're not going to get rewards for things that you fail at. Okay, but he will forgive you in the sins that you commit because you are in Christ. You will not be imputed sins, but the things that we do that are not appropriate will not get reward. Okay, and the things that we do right that are commendable, we will get reward for. This is the good thing about being in Christ. He's forgiven all of the transgressions, all of the sins, and we are setting our own future, whatever is going to happen. I don't know. You know, people ask us all the time, how is it going to be displayed, our rewards? And, you know, it doesn't say. It just says that there are things that will not be rewarded. There are things that will be rewarded. The Lord is perfectly fair in how he does those things. Nothing will be overlooked that you have done for the cause of Christ. Absolutely nothing. And the things that you failed at, they will be burned away. Okay, so trust in that. Know that it's true. But in the meantime, our responsibility is to honor the Lord in whatever position we're in. So, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come here and to be in your presence, to hear this wonderful word shared. And uh, Lord, help us to be responsible and to think critically and to teach those that are under us to think critically. The children, the grandchildren, the people that we have influence over in our lives. Help us to be responsible to get them to think through the things of the Lord while there is time, because the time is certainly getting short. 
Lord, help us to do this so that you will be glorified in those lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. This baby up break. <laughs>